This is Chris Vogler. I'm the author of The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers, and also Memo from the Story Department, Secrets of Structure and Character. And you're listening to Genretainment. This is Jean Entertainment, and we're your hosts, Marks and Julie. And on today's episode, we're chatting with author Jay Thorne. He's published over two million words, has sold more than 185,000 <laughs> books worldwide. He's also the co-creator of the three-story method, the story rubric, the non-fic rubric, and co-hosts his own podcasts. It was exciting to finally get to have Jay on the show. He's an author that I've been following for years now. And we had a great chat with him about all of his projects. We also chatted about the advantages of co-writing, writing short stories, writing post-apocalyptic fiction, and why having grit is so important as an author. Before we get into this episode's interview, I do want to mention again an anthology I had the honor of taking part of recently. My new science fiction comedy short story can be found in the anthology Like Sunshine After Rain. In the show notes, you can find a link to the cover reveal page, which has more information and pre-order links if you're interested. The book is filled with short stories, poems, and essays. And all the proceeds benefit the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, a great cause to support. Yes, and thanks to Heidi Ruby Miller for editing and organizing the anthology. She'll be on the show in the very near future. But for now, let's get to our interview with Jay Thorne. Well, welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Super excited to have you on. You've been one of those authors for me that has been like in a virtual mentor of sorts, mm-hmm. sort of like, uh, like Joanna Penn and Michael Ron. So we're really excited to have you on here kind of pick your brain a little bit about being an indie author. And before we start discussing your many different projects, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience with how you first got started with this writing career? How I first got started. I'm not one of those writers who was like, oh, I always knew I wanted to be a writer from the time I was four. Like, I, I wish I had that kind of direction in life. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to hear that there's someone besides yeah. me out there like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it didn't. Uh, I mean, I, you know, when I look back now, I see that, that writing and and more generally storytelling has been a big part of my life and continues to be, but being a novelist was not even on the radar until I was well into my thirties. So, uh, you know, I started, um, I go way back. I started as a dungeon master in dungeons and dragons oh, at, cool. you know, 11 and 12 years old. And I really loved playing that game, but only if I could be the DM because well, that's good storytelling I wanted to training. Be, yeah, that's right. I wanted to be the one in charge of the story. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of where it started. And then, in college, I wrote op-ed pieces for the school newspaper. That was back when they had these long pieces of paper with black print on them, and they yes. had news on them, and you would read them. Oh, that, the best part, um, I love, you probably <laughs> are the same as me, like these young whippersnappers these days, they don't understand, like, you had to worry about the square inch and right. the amount, and then I loved the old light table with the hot wax and the and the exacto <laughs> knife, you know, and you'd, you'd actually piece it together and make this Frankenstein page that you would then take down to the shop, the print shop in yeah. your school. Yeah. And yeah, you know, you, you, was... you had to, you had to care about the content, but you had to know how to cut it down to fit in a certain square inch fitting, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard to believe. I was writing at the University of Pittsburgh in the late 80s, and I remember the first day they moved they moved desktop computers into the office for the oh, for the newspaper yeah. to write them on computer. Like that's it's 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 just I don't know. It feels like another lifetime ago. Um, yeah, that and that, and so like you know, I, and I can kind of trace that storytelling gene all the way through my life. I've I've been in in bands since I was 18 years old. There's a lot of storytelling involved with songwriting. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. And then eventually, you know, I, I read Stephen King's on writing and I figured, okay, I've got this all figured out now. I'll just become the next Stephen King. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my, my writing career. How's that going? <laughs> I didn't, didn't quite get there. <laughs> hey, you made it to our show. I call it a success. Yeah, take that, King. <laughs> yeah, he, he hasn't, he been, hasn't been on our show. He so on. as far as I'm concerned, you are up there above him. <laughs> Right on. That's <laughs> uh, cool that you started with role-playing games. I didn't realize that. That's, that's kind of how I started, too, with Dungeon Dragons. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I, I honestly can't claim that because I, I hadn't done any role-playing until I met Marks. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I haven't done the Game Master. I don't think that would really be my strong suit. I like mm. playing kick-ass characters. <laughs> yeah. I, I like playing the ones that kick-ass and usually don't bother to take names. Yep. <laughs> You're right. High dice rolls. That's all that matters. <laughs> So, you, of course, you write fiction. You also do nonfiction and teach. One thing you came out with, came out of a system that you co-created called the three-story method. Why don't you tell our, our audience a little bit more about that method and how it compares to maybe some other popular methods that they've heard of? Yeah, sure. It's been almost a year since that book came out, and it's a lot's happened in the past year. It feels like a lot longer than that. Yeah. <laughs> But really the idea, you know, I'm a, I'm a certified story grid editor. I was uh, trained in the first class by Sean Coyne back in 2017. And that is and, not easy to get, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was uh, it was new at the time and uh, and, and a bit of a risk um, for, for many reasons. But, um, you know, I've always been a story nerd. I've always been – I constantly read craft books. And, you know, your skill set's an evolution. Like you're always growing. You're always learning, at least – at least I, that's how I see it. And I, um, Zach and I, Zach Bahanna, my uh, partner in crime, you know, we were running these author events, world building weekends and authors on a train and, and doing these these really cool things. And we were trying to help people create a framework for writing stories. And what we found we were doing is was we were pulling bits and pieces of all these methodologies. So, you know, save the cat and the hero's journey and the snowflake method and story grid and yet we were kind of pulling it together into our own sort of formula. And I think this is how most story methodologies start. You know, they, they start by pulling bits and pieces and elements from others. And so I, and Zach said, like, well, we really need to codify this. And I was like, well, then we should probably write a book about it. That, that would make sense. So I spent months going back through and I read literally dozens of craft books and and pulling out elements. And, and if you read three-story method, you'll know that it really is this conglomeration of all these different methodologies. And my my Uber goal, which is what I think sets my book apart from other craft books, is my aim was simplicity from the beginning. I wanted something that was incredibly simplistic, efficient, and easy to understand, but would take a lifetime to master. And so what I boil three-story method down to is what we call the three C's. And those are the three basic components of any story, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And we label those as the conflict, the choice, and the consequence. So whether you're telling a story in a bar to a bunch of friends or you're writing a novel or you're writing a sales email, if you're telling a story, 
by just the, the DNA of storytelling, you have those three elements in it. So we try and come up with the initial conflict, which is the event that starts the story that pushes us out of the status quo or our protagonist out of the status quo. We force that protagonist to make a choice. The harder the choice, the better the story is. And then the consequence is the result of that choice. And it sounds super easy and super simple, but it, it gives you a framework to work from. And, and that really is the core of three-story method. I like that. I think it's great. Yeah, sometimes the story methods out there, they get so complex. Oh, yeah. have so much terminology that it can get really overwhelming, be intimidating just by, that, by itself. And I like how you build upon existing mythologies and, and you also talk about them too you don't just say like i made it up out of thin air you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's based right, right. on knowledge and, it, and information what yeah. this is 2021 <laughs> i mean we do, we have passed the the era of information a long time ago yep. yeah i mean there's a lineage too like you know joseph campbell came out you know he 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 looked at it from a more academic standpoint and looked at sort of the cultural implications of storytelling in mythology and religion and then you had Christopher Vogler who came along and sort of adapted that to a, more of a modern form of storytelling. And then you had Robert McKee who took Vogler's work and kind of created his own version of storytelling. And then you had Sean Coyne who was a mentor of McKee, create StoryGrid. And then you have me who is a mentor of Sean Coyne with three-story methods. So like <laughs> you're right. Like there isn't – you're not going to come up with this brand-new original storytelling idea and like you could even argue that Campbell went all the way back to Aristotle and who knows who Aristotle right, got it yeah. from but like you can follow it you know and and so it's not about coming up with an original idea it's coming up with an original approach to an idea that everyone already recognizes awesome and there's a book and a workbook out right now right yeah we created a uh, both a book and a workbook so um and and uh the workbook is more out of convenience. There's a free download in the back of the book. You can download a Word or PDF document and print out the worksheets if you want. The workbook is nice because what we've done is we've replicated the scene worksheet 80 or 90 times so that if you're if you're mapping out, say, a whole novel or you're developing a whole novel, you can just buy one workbook. And we price the workbooks at cost, so we don't make anything from the workbook. They're, you know, they're a few dollars. We wanted to make them kind of disposable so that people wouldn't make them precious. Like I know a lot of times I, I see these wonderful journals out there and, and I want to get them and I think I'd never use it because it's too nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so I didn't want that. Like we wanted it to be, a, you know, a, a disposable mindset and that like, yeah, you can, you can grab a workbook for every project that you have and it's bound and all in one place. Cool. Kind of a, as an extension to that, you have the story rubric that you came out with for fiction and nonfiction, which I think is, you know, so I have an MFA that I got recently. And one of the most useful things I've learned when taking my teaching classes was how to create rubrics for classes. Right. And I guess I had a little bit of experience with rubrics because I, I worked for a script analysis company that, that had one for us, I guess, to make sure we were all kind of oh, doing yeah, the same standard. Oh, yeah, I forgot you did that. Yeah. And so, you know, I love when I saw this tool that you came out with. And it's just kind of one of those head-slapping moment things like, duh, why didn't somebody do this before? <laughs> <laughs> What's really cool about it too is that you allow people to be able to, to submit, to add to it too, which I hope to do someday when I get a chance here or try to. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story rubric and, and why you did that? Yeah, that was an, uh, another natural evolution. I have, a, I have a master's degree in education and I taught for 23 or 24 years. Um, and I taught at every level. I taught... Um, my favorite saying is I taught kindergartners how to read and graduate students how to write and everything in between. <laughs> and um, one of the 
things that I learned probably in the early 90s was there was this assessment movement in education and it was about, you know, how do we make assessments that are more meaningful? We're all familiar with standardized testing and bubble sheets yeah. and multiple choice tests. Uh, but those Which don't do really not measure learning. how well someone has learned. That's right. That's right. They don't they don't measure that at all, really. There was a trend in education and uh and then in the early 2000s, it, it became more solidified and we, we were developing a lot of rubrics. And so the department, the history department where I was teaching, we kind of came up with these different rubrics that would be the same for all classes. Because another problem we had was if you had, you know, Mrs. Jones history class versus Mr. Smith's history class, even though they're teaching the same content, the expectations could be radically different. And students know that they're smart enough to, to figure that out. <laughs> so. A rubric is a nice way of, of having consistent assessment uh, measurements. And so I was working, you know, fast forward a few decades, and, and now I'm working with clients and, and uh, doing developmental editing. And I was sort of following the, the traditional editorial letter, which I, I would write up all the things that the, the author needed to take a look at or revise or improve. Mm-hmm. And it was just a wall of text. And I was like, this feels really antiquated. Like an editorial letter just feels like something that they used 40 years ago. And I had this light bulb moment of like, well, what if I made a rubric and then I use the rubric to assess the manuscript? This way, the author wouldn't have to wade through thousands and thousands of words of this editorial letter and they could zero in on certain aspects of their manuscript. The other thing that was great about it, about a rubric, is that you have these gradients, right? So you can look at at one side of the rubric, which would be considered like if, you, if you're not meeting expectations or, or it, it's completely not working and all the way to the other side is excellence. And then you have the scale in between. So you can get very specific and granular with your feedback as an editor. So I tried it out with, it, with uh, a few clients. I said, hey, you know, in addition to how I normally work with you, check out this rubric. Let me know what you think of this. They were like, oh my God, you have to do this. Like this is <laughs> so helpful. And so I was talking to my friend Chris, who I, I run the Author Success Mastermind with, and I said, I don't really know what to do with this. Like, I don't know if I should write a book or I'm like, I really don't want to build Always a course. A I kind of don't want to write a book, you know, but like it was like a rubric. Uh-huh. And I don't know, part of me had like the scarcity mindset. And I'm like, what if someone takes it? And she's like, well, so what if someone takes it? And then I, I made this other connection that I had with the business model canvas, which Alex Osterwalder created. He put that in in Creative Commons licensing. He basically says anyone can take the business model canvas and adapt it and revise it and use it as long as you give him credit as being the one who created it. And I was like, that's it. So that's what I did. I took the rubrics. I put Creative Commons licensing on them, which means anyone can use them for anything, commercial purposes. You can adapt it, change it. The only thing I ask is that you put a proper citation at the bottom that I have on the form that credits me and links back to both story rubric and nonfic rubric and otherwise have at it, use it for what it's worth. Um, so that's been my approach with, with the rubrics. That's, that's really cool. cool. It's kind of like the open gaming license. with D- Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's open sourced, you know, and I'm really encouraging people to come up with variations and send them to me. Uh, I'll put them on the, the main page, almost like an archive, but if they don't want to, they can print them out and use them as is. And hopefully it, it, just helps people to, to make better stories. I, I think the rubrics are really powerful, and uh, however they help you, yeah, great. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to try once a little more downtime to add something. <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. Every time he says when I have a little downtime, I laugh because he 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 always makes sure he never has any downtime. No, somehow, yeah, I know how that goes. <laughs> Another thing that's really interesting is you do a non 
you have a non nonfic. I don't know why I say that. You're trying to say nonfiction. <laughs> nonfiction uh, story rubric. Why did you decide to do a nonfiction version of that? Well, I write a lot of nonfiction. I had to do clients who write nonfiction as well, and it it seemed like a no brainer. Like once I had the story rubric done, I'm like, well, I could pretty easy like in a day or two, I could write up, uh, I could adapt this to a nonfiction rubric, and you know, wh- why not? It's kind of two sides of the same coin. So, mm-hmm. it uh, one story rubric was done, that was kind of a no brainer. I would imagine it would be somewhat helpful because for a lot of people who have gone through the academic side of things it would be so easy to say, I'm writing a nonfiction book, but basically write like a really, really, really long, extensive research paper. And that's and not exactly going to be the most user-friendly book for the average person. Right. <laughs> I mean, that might be exactly. your inclination because of training, right? Like you're just cranking yeah. out this really long research paper, but that's not necessarily what a lot of people are going to want to read. Not, yeah, not No, no. <laughs> <laughs> You also co-host or have co-hosted a number of different podcasts over the years. For example, you used to co-host the Writers Well with Rachel Heron, who uh, who actually I uh, got to meet at our university. She was one of the speakers there. Oh, um, wonderful! Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about your current podcasts? They're out, yeah. like like Writers Inc. I think is one of them. Yeah, I have two writing podcasts out now. The one is is relatively new. Writers Inc. is the one I started. As I'm trying to think of time now, how long it's been. Little. Would have been the fall of 19, I guess, with J.D. Barker. Mm-hmm. So I, I met J.D. Barker at Thriller Fest in New York City in the summer of 2019. I, I pitched him a podcast idea, and he immediately said no. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, that's totally cool. I understand. Like I, I, I usually understand that in, in the world of creativity, you know, nine of ten of your projects or ideas are always going to fail. So. I just accept that that's going to happen. And then every once in a while, one of them kind of pops up and surprises you. Uh, So I had a back and forth with JD and he really wanted to improve his public speaking and his presentation skills. So he thought, ah, why not? You know, we'll give this a shot. So we decided on doing an interview format podcast, interviewing writers. It's called Writers Inc. A little play on words there, (laughs) I-N-K. But the the writers are not just novelists. So we interview uh, screenwriters and uh, and nonfiction writers, fiction writers. We've had a wide variety of guests. JD is very well connected in the industry. So we've been able to get on folks like James Patterson and um, Blake Crouch. And uh, recently we had Matthew McConaughey on for his latest book tour. So it's it's been a really wonderful experience for me, as I sh- I'm sure you two know, when you do an interview podcast, you, you really, you almost get like a private mentoring session with the person you're, you're talking to. So oh, yeah. um, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Listeners have responded well to it. And um, we're up to episode 70 or 71 now, something like that. Um, Zach has recently joined us sort of full time now. So now Zach is part of that podcast. Yeah, and that's been great. And then the other one I just started more recently with Chris Kane is the Author Success Mastermind podcast. That is uh, much like the writers well when I was doing with Rachel and that we're taking a question from our uh, writer community and sort of going deep on it in a podcast format. Cool. Yeah, I've listened to both of those. It was really good. Matthew McConaughey interview was quite good. Thanks. <laughs> I'm sure it was all right, all right, all right. <laughs> well, I, I couldn't help I, it. I tried so hard. I was like, don't do it, don't do it. It's just it's I requisite. I, you know, and I, I, it's funny you mentioned that because I went back and forth on that. 
I wanted to ask him to do it, but at the same time, I didn't. You right. know, like I didn't because I know, like I'm sure he gets that, like people yelling at at him on the street, like all the time, and I didn't want to be that guy. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But at the same time, I wanted to hear it. Right. <laughs> and you know so what? My my feeling is, you know, anybody in a situation like his, they should just be grateful. People remember it and know who you are, and and yeah. are excited yeah. to to hear you say it or to say it to you because if if they you know he'd probably be more upset if people had forgotten about him <laughs> yeah and and i get the sense i i mean i obviously don't know him other than the interview but like i get the sense that he is very appreciative of his success and yeah. his fame and that he is he's not the kind of person who would get upset if someone you know said that to him on the street yeah now, you've also done a lot of co-writing over the years and i think you co-wrote uh, maybe two different books in co-writing, I think, because I think you did one with Joanna Penn, another one with Zach, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, so you you co-wrote a fiction book, fiction novel with Joanna Penn, Risen Gods, which was really really great book. Um, and in New Zealand, I think it was right. Correct. Sure. And yeah. That mythology, and uh, I thought that 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 uh, Authors on a Train project is great. The the one you co-wrote with Joanna Penn and um, oh my. Lincoln now, Lindsay, Roker, and Zach, I believe, with uh, American Demon Hunters. Mm, yeah. That was really great. I love that idea that you guys get on a train and write this book together. <laughs> that is really cool. <laughs> yeah, so, so authors, you know, people who are authors or want to be authors, you know, they really imagine this sort of like lone creative genius sitting in a room, writing away by themselves. And they don't ever think about working with other authors, no. really. You don't think of it as a collaborative See, I'm project. jealous because ever since I was, like, a teenager, I had this dream of, like, getting a bunch of friends together and having, like, a party. But at the party, one person would, like, go into another room and start a story and come back and, and read it aloud. And then the next person would go and, like, add to the story. And then at the end of the evening, you'd have, like, this really cool story all wrote together. And, and probably there would be drinking involved, so you get to see how that <laughs> that would sort of evolve or devolve of the story went. But it's really hard to get a lot of anybody to want to write with other people, in my experience. Well, obviously, you're doing it. So. Yeah, he's doing it. That's, so, why I, that's why I'm really excited to hear this. So what is it that you love about co-writing, and you know, why would you suggest that as an approach for authors? I really never thought it was strange, uh, because I... Like I said, I wasn't like one of those kids who was like, oh, someday I'm going to dream of being an author and I'm going to sit in the woods by myself and type away on a typewriter in a log cabin and then money will just come to me. Yeah. Like I just never had that sort of dream. In fact, I, I would say I came from the from a different artistic expression of music yes. in that Which is collaborative. in music, I think the solo the solo genius is is really more of a myth. like it's it's. It's not really even encouraged all that much. They're, no. they're, they're outliers. Like there are very few people who are singularly famous uh, as musicians. Right. You know, in, in the in the world of music, especially in rock bands, it, the very nature is collaboration. Like that's mm -hmm. what a band is. You get four, three or four or five people in a room together, and you got to battle it out. Like you, you know, you got to come with ideas. You have to be, you have to be supportive. You have to be critical. You have mm -hmm. to lead. You have to follow. You know, sometimes you decide on a part with your guitar. Other times it's with a fist. Like, yeah. you know, the, but like it, it, it really is a creative energy that's by its very nature is collaborative. And that is what I came to novel writing with. So to me, it felt odd to sit in a room by myself and type out a story and not share it with anyone and not ask for feedback and not, not to, like and just to emerge with like, OK, here it is. What do you think like that? 
felt really foreign to me. So it's, it's hard for me to answer that question. Cause I know like there are a lot of writers who are hardcore introverts as I, as I am uh, as well, but they, they just want to sit in a room and type. And, and I think that's fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. I think where you have to really think about your process is when it comes to commercialization. Mm-hmm. So if you really love to tell stories and all you want to do is write stories and stick them in your drawer, then by all means go sit in the woods by yourself and type like that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're looking for something that's going to be commercially viable, if you want people to read it, I really truly believe that storytelling is better with, with input. And even I would even push back on those hardcore, you know, lone wolf style writers who say, I don't need anyone. Well, eventually you do like eventually <laughs> you, need you to hire an it. editor. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, you need editors, you need cover designers, especially if you're self-publishing, if you're, if you're pursuing traditional, you know, you need to team up with an agent or a publishing house's editor. Like, you still need other people. Mm-hmm. So I think even that is, a, that is a myth, but, exactly. um, you know, even, and I'm sure, you know, you both know from your own experience, you get too close to your own words, you get mm-hmm. too close to your own story. And sometimes you lose the ability to objectively step back and make it better. And I think that's where having collaborative partners, whether they're co-writers or editors you've worked with a long time or a team of writers, um, that that's the best approach. And like, and if you look at you look at at mass media in general, writing is the only place where that's even somewhat accepted. Like, can you imagine trying to create a movie with a single screenwriter and no no other input, or a television show with with a room of writers with one writer in it? Like, it just wouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. I know how you feel. I grew up with music as well. I grew up, you know, piano and percussion and and performing and and all that stuff. So that's music was always so collaborative. Um, right. But I mean, even if you're a lone piano player, you, you need your teacher and coach, right? I mean, you need, you need someone to help you out and to, to hear things that you're not hearing when you're playing it exactly. Right. Um, and also, you know, I get criticism from, I'm extremely extroverted, like, you know, me alone in a room forever, which is be my, that wouldn't be my definition of like writing heaven. That's just hell. Like, I mean, I, I, I do not thrive in that environment and I'm so much more extroverted, but I guess that's probably why I always say every business is people business. Like there's, there's nothing you can do at all, except I guess be a hermit in the middle of nowhere where you're not going to need other people like writing. Like you said, you need, you need beta readers. You need an editor. You need someone who can make the cover. You need people who can help you distribute. You need to get the word out. Every business is people business. There's no such thing as a business. that's not. That's true. I also wonder if maybe um, being in role playing games originally, it's also a collaboration. Because yeah. even though you're the GM or DM, the players still contribute to that story somewhat yeah. too. Yeah, you you can't. Yeah, you can't be a DM with no players. Nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, can't be a band leader with no band. <laughs> you're just a crazy person waving your arms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have those, but I mean, I don't right. think that that's something you want to aspire to. <laughs> well, and also, we were wanting to talk about with your fiction writing that you focus heavily on post-apocalyptic stories, which yes. really gets my attention. That's some of my favorite novels and stories. My whole upbringing, you know, Fahrenheit 451, The Handmaid's Tale. I loved The Handmaid's Tale years before anyone ever thought of turning that into a TV show, I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, 
sort of that post-apocalyptic, well, humanity's screwed, were always my go-to favorite things to ever read. <laughs> Boy, that doesn't sound right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so why, why that genre? Yeah, so maybe you can explain a little better than I can figure out what is so appealing and what's appealing about it to you. I think for me, it's it's just really pure escapism. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe less so over the past year, but prior <laughs> to this year, uh, I would say it, it's just yeah, it's escapism. It, it it's putting living vicariously in a place that doesn't necessarily exist, I mean, and there's different flavors of it. Like I'm, I, I like zombie stories. I'm not a huge zombie fan. Yeah. I like more of the contemporary post-apoc where it's human elements as opposed yeah. to supernatural ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even still, I, I, I think what's, I love the, the fantasy element of it. And, um, and I've always been fascinated by atrophy and decay, which, which sounds like a really bizarre <laughs> thing to say, but like, I've always been the one who would like love to g- drive through the parts of the neighborhood where they're the, the abandoned buildings. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by that. Like, I want to know, like, how did those buildings become abandoned and who lived in them and and what did they look like when they when they were originally built and how did they get into this condition there's a there's a high level of curiosity that goes along with that and for most of my life i've lived in either well i, I grew up in pittsburgh and for the past 15 years i've been living in cleveland and those are two uh, rust belt cities yeah. and and those are two cities that have lost a lot of population over the past 40 or 50 years. So there are parts of both of those cities where there are stretches, streets, neighborhoods that are completely abandoned. Mm -hmm. And I just find that fascinating. And I think that's what taps into that sort of post-apocalyptic setting is like, where did everyone go and why? And and what's, what's going to happen when we're gone? Like there's a, there's a real strong curiosity that's fueled there. And then on the other side of it, I feel like a good post-apoc story. And this is what I try and do when I'm writing them. There's got to be a glimmer of hope somewhere at the mm-hmm. end uh and and so i i love i love post-apoc stories that that leave you with a sense of melancholy but also hope yeah. um and that's the that's the emotion i'm trying to evoke out of readers when i write post-apoc yeah it probably is a lot of escapism when i was very very young i loved more of the pure fantasy type thing you know then i got a little older and it was more grounded in post-apocalyptic you know <laughs> <laughs> so i think you're onto something there But yeah, I think it does sort of shape our, I think that people who grew up in like LA or New York are going to have a very different outlook on life than like, you know, you coming from more of the Rust Belt areas and, you know, where I'm from, it's sort of like where the Rust Belt meets coal country and agriculture, all three of which have been in significant decline. You know, I mean, I was a little kid. My dad was a coal miner. He went from the coal mines to the factories. And, you know, our, our family reunions went on tobacco farms. So, I mean, none of these groups are, ha- are faring well in recent <laughs> <Right>. decades. <laughs> and it does give you a slightly different outlook on life than the people who are living in these thriving metropolitan areas. But I've always found it interesting you talk about the hope because I found people who who mostly, those of us who kind of grew up in these areas like that, tend to be a bit more, not only have more grit, but a little bit more hopeful. So many people who have had it, grew up in areas where they had it so much easier, are the least hopeful people, <laughs> you know? I don't know if it's like a muscle that never had to develop because things just went well, 
or what. But yeah, I think that maybe it's that that combination of grit, escapism and grit and hope in a post-apocalyptic setting that perhaps we need people who are from yeah. from from the flyover country like all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there's a I mean we're talking sweeping generalizations of course, yeah, of but course. I think there's a there's a blue collar work ethic in in cities like Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Detroit. Right. Uh Chicago. There's sort of a lunch bucket mentality like you know you you honor your responsibilities. You punch in, you do your job, you do it well, you go home, you serve your family. And, and there are problems with that too. Like I'm not glorifying that, but I think there there is a sort of built-in grit there. You know, like when I was when I was growing up in Pittsburgh in, in the 70s, I tell the story, people can't believe it. Like my grandfather worked in the mills and uh, they lived on a, on a ridge above the mills and they they would have been considered upper middle class at the time, but they they didn't have much. And what they did have was like a 16 foot above ground pool in their backyard. Ooh. And every day, my grandfather in the summer or, or one of my uncles would have to go out and sweep the pool mm -hmm. because there would be a coating of black soot on the bottom from oh, the yeah. mills. Yeah. And that was every single day. <laughs> so I, I think there's, you know, and there are people that, that grow up in that environment. Like, you know, that's that's what it was. Pittsburgh in the 70s was a gritty, dirty, stinky place. And I think to th to survive in, in, a, in an environment like that, like you got to have grit and it gets built into generations and it gets into your DNA. So, you know, luckily, you know, most of my work is done behind a keyboard. But I but I, you know, I have that running through my blood and I, I I've kind of adopted that that blue collar work ethic when it comes to everything that I do. And the work ethic will serve you well in anything, whether it's a blue-collar job or especially writing, because you have to be so persistent and resilient writing. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? and, and, and you'll survive a zombie apocalypse with a blue-collar work ethic, too. <laughs> <Yes>. really well. <laughs> but, you know, I think that, that's something that's very much overlooked. I know there's this amazing, amazing artist. Her name's Myra Sheeter. You know, she's got artwork that's hanging all over the world in embassies and, you know, just like high end, you know, people pay, you know, a quarter of a million dollars for a painting. And she lives nearby, close to my hometown. And every morning, Monday through Friday, she gets up, she has breakfast, she goes into her studio in her home at eight, comes out at noon, has an hour of lunch, goes back into her studio until about five, does that at least five days a week. And it's like punching a time card. She's like, yes. if I, if I, if I sat around and waited for inspiration to strike, I'd never get anything done. I just, right. it's a job. I, I just go. And I mean, she's this incredibly gifted artist and, you know, celebrated in these big circles in like, you know, Manhattan and all this stuff. But she, she lives in a small town in Indiana and boy, she approaches it like a job. Just that's how she was raised. you know. <laughs> and if she didn't have that kind of grit and that stick to itiveness and, and that work ethic like that you have, you know, you just really wouldn't get much done. Right. Why don't you tell our audiences if they're wondering, oh boy, I wonder what post-apocalyptic yes, stories you have. Yes, please tell us some. Can you, can you tell them about a couple of the series you have going? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the biggest series I have, I co-wrote with Glenn James uh, called Dustfall. Um, it's a world I love. It, it's a, it's a post-apoc story, but it's set a few hundred years into the future. So a lot of our modern conveniences and a lot of the remnants of our modern society are, are you know, these cultural artifacts that the people of that time find bizarre. So I, I that, that was a world that we really love to create. I think we've got five books in that series. Zach and I have done a couple with, with different flavors. So we have The Final Awakening, which is sort of a, sort of like a vampire apocalypse style story. 
We have uh, War for Earth, which is an alien invasion post-apoc story. Yes. Um, we have uh, Baron, the Baron series, which is sort of um, it's not it's not cli-fi exactly, but it's definitely sort of a climate-induced apocalypse. So there's that story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've created these different variations and, and different uh, types of uh, apocalypse apocalyptic stories, I guess. Awesome. The, the alien apocalypse stories to me are like the scariest. <laughs> yeah. So cool. I mean, just about this like almost godlike technology coming out of the sky. What the hell are we going to do? Exactly. <laughs> out of curiosity, you know, with us being in a soft apocalypse. This <laughs> <laughs> is a slow rolling. <laughs> it's like slow a slow apoc- rolling yeah. apocalypse. <laughs> you see it coming, but it's in slow motion. <laughs> Uh, have you noticed, you know, any changes? Like, are, are there more people reading books right now, or is it pretty much the same? Or have you seen any changes in your sale numbers? I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's 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 hard to tell. I think most people are just providing anecdotal evidence to that. Um, you know, some people say, "Oh, their book sales are way up," and others will say, "Oh, my 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 book sales are way down." I think my fiction sales have been pretty consistent. They they really haven't changed all that much. Um, I wish I could say like they've they've gone up. Um, <laughs> I have heard some people say like, well, you know, I don't want to read post apoc now because it's just too real because it's too close to what's happening. But I don't think there's, I don't think that's, that's not causation. You know, I think it might be correlation. There might be some people who who think that, but I don't necessarily see that in any sort of, you know, evidentiary way that would convince me that it's happening on a wide scale. Yeah. I've heard, you know, people saying that and. I have and gone some towards agents, lighter fare, I guess, lately. Yeah, and some agents being you know, not wanting to accept stories like that. And I'm kind of like, I don't know. Is See, that really true? Because I remember, like, I mean, I feel like... I think there's always going to be a market for everything. Well, even, like, World War II, you know, comic books had a lot of World War II yeah. stories. You know, sometimes I think there's a... As long as you have hope in there, it could be kind of nice to take a scenario that's happening... But then see hope and see people working through right. it too. Maybe I don't know. I don't want to completely bum them out, I guess. But still. <laughs> well, you know, one, one of my favorite uh, my favorite story gurus is Brian McDonald, and he he often says it's, it's the sole reason for storytelling is survival. It's a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. So you know, back in the caveman times uh, or times of dinosaurs, you know, <laughs> people would tell stories about the saber toothed tiger that was lurking around the bush, right. so that no one else got eaten. Right. And that's sort of where this whole idea of storytelling came from. So I think if you look at it through that lens, then, you know, people who really love post-apocalyptic stories now are using them as a as a survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, because we're not obviously not in a in an EMP or a zombie apocalypse yet, but (laughs) we are in a in a situation where. You know, you can learn from those. Like, you know, how do you deal with the isolation? How do you deal with the lack of resources? How do you deal with misinformation? Like, th- these are all things, these are all themes that run through post-apocalyptic books. And so if you're reading those now, some people might be reading those as as a means of, to survival. So that's why I don't necessarily buy the argument that, well, people aren't going to read it because it's too close. Like, I, I think it could be the opposite could be true. I think people could be reading those looking for answers. I think it's kind of in our DNA to almost want to be scared sometimes, too. I mean, you know, little kids love, they're like, oh, we'll scream, and they're like, do it again, you know? And, (laughs) and I, you know, some of these, these fairy tales that we tell that have been passed to kids for centuries are disturbing and scary. And I think, like what you said there about the scary saber, I, I think that a lot of stories were told at night around a campfire about the scary things that are out there in the shadows and at night. And it was a good scare, and it was entertaining, but it also 
provided information. It was teaching, you know, yeah. and it was, it might have scared them and they kind of enjoyed it, but it was a big scare, but they also were thinking, oh, this is what I do the next time I run into whatever, you exactly. know? And so I think yeah. that storytelling just in general is just in human DNA. I mean, you either want to tell stories or you want to hear stories, consume stories yes. somehow. And scary, you know, the scary and the post-apocalyptic and the, oh gosh, what would I do in that situation? I think we're just really programmed, pre-programmed to think that way, Mm -hmm. honestly. So, if people couldn't figure it out by now, you're an indie author. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we've had people on who are indie authors, people who are traditionally published, people who are a hybrid. What is it about being an indie author that drew you down that path? versus trying to, the whole querying at agents and, and get, trying to be traditionally published. And is traditionally publishing ever something you would ever you know be open to at some point for a project? Yeah, well, I, I'm not a flag-waving indie author. In fact, I, I, I rarely even discuss it. It's because I don't, I, I don't see competing camps. I don't see sort of a mutual exclusivity there. Mm-hmm. I look at it as a project-by-project basis. What is the best thing I can do for this project. And so far it's been to self-publish it. I'm not the the writer who says, well, you know, screw traditional publishing. Like I'm doing it my way. Like I think there are benefits and drawbacks to both. So I, you know, I'm currently right now, I'm finishing up a manuscript I've been working on for a year. And my, my goal is to, is to query agents with it. And I want to, you know, I want to see if I can get it traditionally published. And when I met JD at Thriller Fest, I was doing Pitch Fest. I went in and I pitched a, a novel, a manuscript, to 15 different agents. So I think, you know, for me, I don't want to limit any options that I have. You know, there there are great advantages, and you, you can Google on the internet. There's a, a ton of info out there. You know, there's great advantages to being an indie, and there are advantages to being traditionally published. So I, I like to remind people that there's two things I like to remind writers when I have this conversation. The first one is, you don't have to be an indie writer or a traditional writer. You look at it at a book by book decision. Mm-hmm. Like you can have, you can be a hybrid. Like there, there's t- nothing wrong with that. The second thing, which I think it's lost in it a lot, is people think that they can choose to be an indie writer or a traditional, traditionally published writer. You can't choose that. You can choose to self publish, and that will make you an indie, or you can choose to pursue traditional publishing. Mm-hmm. But there is no, like it, it's not like an option. Like. Um, you know, we, we know what the numbers are, you know, the, the, the percent, the small percentage of slush piles that find their way into an agent who then represents a writer. And then the small percentage of those manuscripts that get sold to a traditional publisher, like that's, it's really, really hard. And I, when people talk about it as a choice, I, I, I don't think that's an honest evaluation of the situation. You can choose to self-publish or choose to pursue traditional publishing, but you can't choose traditionally publishing. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. I know. I kind of dig the entrepreneurial vibe of the traditional yeah. <laughs> path, you know. I do, but I can understand it's not for every. No, no. That. Well, I mean, there's work. nothing. There's no such thing as something that's right for everybody. No. Otherwise, right. we'd have one like religion, said, not a million yeah. different kinds. <laughs> well, and, and like I said, you know, it's it's a it's a project by project basis too. Like, you know, I look at something like the Final Awakening. Like, that's that's the best selling fiction series that I've written, and it, you know, Zach and I. We, we just checked. We had a book bub on that, the box set for that series, and we double-checked our, our page reads. It's been in Kindle Unlimited since we launched it three years ago. Yeah, three years ago. And we have 3.7 million page reads on that series. Sweet. Which is phenomenal, and we're really pleased with that. 
And yet that series would never have been touched by an agent or a traditional publisher because it's just not what they're looking for. Okay. So again, it goes to this idea that like, you know, there's one isn't better than the other. It's just, you have to think about the project that you're working on. What's that better suited for? Mm-hmm. And the manuscript I'm working on right now that I'm going to, that I want to query agents with is more of a mainstream sort of horror, dark thriller standalone. And, uh, you know, and I think that's much better suited to what agents are looking for now versus some other style or genre. Mm-hmm. True. I notice you gravitate towards series. Do you feel like that's, that works well for authors to do series versus standalone as an indie? I love series. It, it depends on genre. Um, you know, I think if you're writing horror, it's really hard to write horror in a series. Like it, it, I've tried it. It hasn't worked for me. I, I haven't seen it work for too many people. A romantic comedy um, would be hard, I think, to do yeah, more, a series yeah. or something. Exactly. Then you look at the other side of it, you know, if you're looking at something like um, like space opera sci-fi or any kind of romance, like uh, that's that's where you got to write in a series because those those are voracious readers and they will they will read through the whole thing. So I don't think it's necessarily an author decision as much as it is as a, a genre decision. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Now, I remember I didn't get a chance to partake in it uh, because it was about to graduate and I got sidetracked, but I remember you uh, emailing about that you're going to like write one short story every month this year. How's that going? Yeah. Have you been doing that and how's that been going? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm into a groove now, you know, um, I have a routine. I have time set aside. Uh, it's, it's a challenge. I, I think it's a little harder than I thought, but it's a good kind of challenge, you know, it's forcing me to not be precious with ideas. It's forcing me to create something and move on, uh, which is good. I think ten, I have a lot of tendency to go back and tinker with stuff, and and that's not always the best approach. So yeah, we're um, you know, we're we're approaching the beginning of April here, and uh, I am I'm about three or four stories ahead so far, and I, I have no reason to believe that I won't uh, I won't write fifty two this year. Awesome, great. Oh, so is it one every week, not every month? Is that what it is? One every week. Oh, oh yeah, wow. Yeah. He was telling me month. <laughs> that's hard enough. One every week. Ooh, wow. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, good for you. That's good. Yeah, I know in the MFA program, so we do these workshops at every term. And, you know, some people would use their thesis and they would just keep using that. But I was like, you know what? You know, it seems silly to, like, give somebody... Like the middle, a chunk in the middle with no context, yeah, no context. at all. You know? I don't know how useful that is. So I was like, you know, I'm going to write a short story each time. I'm going to try to do a different genre every time. He did too. And that was such a, I think that really made me a much, I don't know, fleshed me out as a writer. I think It also confused ways. the hell out of your professors. Oh, yeah. yeah. They couldn't label me in a box. I was like, they were like what are you doing? Last one was hard. Fooled ya. Now it's a comedy. Um, but yeah. I would suggest that. For, it sounds like it's working for you, too. I would suggest that for a lot of writers is just try to, to do different well, short stories. Well, because it's hard. At, when you first start out, it can be hard to think of creative ideas. The more you do it, it's not like you're going to run out of them. Like, oh, I used them all up. The more you start thinking about it, then the more you get. Yeah. And the better they get. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I was the same way whenever I first started writing. I was like, oh, these ideas are precious and they will run yeah. out. What would I ever do? <laughs> But the more turns it, out, you just get more. Yeah. yeah, the more you create, the more you you get. Yeah. Yep. Whenever you use something like the three story method for writing a story, you know how do you how do you tweak that? You know, a short story structure wise, 
And of course, size size wise is very different than a novel. You know, mm -hmm. how are you uh, kind of approaching that method? Yeah, I just use the scene the scene template really um, from the worksheet, and that you can get from from the website. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just it's it's a much smaller scale, obviously. And really, for short stories, I focus mostly just on the three C's because you know you don't have a lot of real estate to to world build. You're not doing deep characterization. You're really developing just a a, a single piece of entertainment that needs to be quick and efficient and you need to get right into it. So for short stories, uh, mostly just focusing on the three C's will get me going. So when I sit down to, to write a short story before I do that, I'll have a bullet point for each of those three C's and that's all I have. And that's what I'll use to then write the story. Oh, very cool. cool. Have any of these short stories that you've written after you get done, you're like, you know, I think I'd rather stick with this and flesh that out into a novel or a series. There have been, and, and the struggle I have is that what I want to do is not necessarily what readers want, and I, I have to constantly remind myself of that. I, I've been so guilty of building things as, a, as an entrepreneur or, or writing things that I really think is cool and no one else does, <laughs> and, uh, and that's fine. Like I said, that's fine if you're, not, if you're not trying to make a living at it, but if you are, like you're, you're going to go broke if you do that. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do now is be much more aware of what the audience wants. So one of the things that I built into the short story project is anyone who, um, who purchased that option from my list, they get the ability at the end of every, every short story to rate it, and it's the same rating form every time. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do at the end of the year is I'm going to go back and I'm going to look and see, okay, what were my highest rated stories, and what did people say about those? Because mm -hmm. my intention was – having 52 different short stories, I can take any one of those and create a novel or a series around it. Um, but I'm only going to do that for the ones that really connected with the readers. Oh, that's smart. So, um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see how it works. You know, uh, I'm resisting the, or the, the temptation to look at those ratings on a week-to-week -week basis because mm -hmm. I don't want it to affect what I'm writing mm -hmm. or how I'm writing. But I think at the end, I, I, I will have some good input from readers that will tell me you know, which one of those kernels might be worth exploring some more. You have so much more self-control than I have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd be checking that baby every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really love that. It's like TV pilot season. Yeah, it is. Right. Picked up. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. And you know, sometimes they're very surprised in which TV pilots get the response and which ones don't too. True. You know? That's right. That's <laughs> I, I'm, I'm wrong 100% of the time. 100% of the time, when I when I'm writing something, I think, oh, this is going to be real, go really well, and it and it doesn't. Or I think, like, yeah, this isn't that great, so and then people love it. So, so what you're saying uh, is, just, you I, yourself are not part of your own core audience. I mean, I think I am, but but I like I don't, you know, I, it's a lesson I've had to learn. It's like, no, I am I am not the reader. Like, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it's sort it, of it's a lesson hard. in it's, humility. It's hard to grapple with. Yeah, you know, is, like, yeah. yeah, you want to think you are the reader, but a lot of times you're not. Sometimes you are, but I'm not. Yeah. It's a lesson in humility, too, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I thought I had that yeah. figured out. Oops. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the more you do it, the less precious you are about it. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I don't know, 20 or 30 novels in at this point, and they're just products to me. Like, I love them, you know, and I put everything into them. And once it's done, it's done. And like, great. If it does well, great. If it doesn't, I'll okay. I got more words. So I'll just write another one. Yep. You're always moving forward. Yeah, I think you have to be. Yep. And if they want clown cowboy riding unicorn story to be a novel series, you go for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if man, if now I want that. You know, 
if if the uh, if you write like if you write something like that and you enjoy it and readers like it then you should double down on it yeah <laughs> now i want that you want yeah. that yeah <laughs> i don't understand why people don't like clowns i come from a cl- i come from a, a family creepy. of clowns like we went to we even went to my dad's clown school graduation together and nice. an uncle when i was growing up an aunt and uncle who were clowns you know mm-hmm. it, i thought it was cool a little creepy sometimes <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, my, I didn't mean my family. I meant clowns in general. My family's creepy, but the clowns aren't. <laughs> you got to be specific here. <laughs> well, you know, we've had a great time chatting with you, Jay. It's been really awesome to finally get to speak to you. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, before we go, can you tell our audience where they can find you and your work online? Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. It was a good time. Uh, the easiest thing to do is go to theauthorlife.com. That's theauthorlife.com. And from there, you can get to everything I do, fiction, nonfiction, podcasts, story rubrics. It's all there. Oh, that's a good good way to put it all in together. Well, one spot, yeah, one, one place to go. Yeah. That's Hi, I'm Dean Wesley Smith, USA Today best-selling writer of well over 100 novels and 17 million copies in print. And you are listening to Genre-tainment. Well, thanks for being on the show, Jay. Check out the show notes for links that we mentioned in the interview. Now, before we go, we want to give a shout-out to the full band duo McCarty, who created our new theme music for Genre-tainment. And you can find links to their YouTube channel in our show notes. Well, that's it for today's Genre-tainment. Until, Until next time. time. Well, poop. Bad monkey.